0: So I'm Jeremiah Brown. I'm a 2012 Olympic silver medalist as a member of the Canadian men's eight rowing team. And that was the London Olympics. And I am the author of the four-year Olympian. And uh, for the last three years, I've been working with the Canadian Olympic Committee uh, leading the development of a program called Game Plan, which is an athlete wellness and transition program for Canada's Olympians, Paralympians, and national team athletes.
1: Congrats on the book.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Sorry, did you, did you just take
1: a breath because you wanted to add more stuff? No, like? I just like <laughs> better, better keep it short. Like, okay,
0: I think those are the the main points. How
1: how has the reception been for your for your book?
0: Actually, I'm kind of relieved to be honest okay. because it's been resonating. It's been striking a chord with people, and uh, people are starting to finish it. So, you know, it was just released, I uh, guess, about a month ago, and mm-hmm. people are reading it and finishing it and emailing me and calling me and telling me that they really enjoyed it
1: yeah was that finishing part and, for me
0: uh, what's that was that
1: was the finishing part directly no 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 no, no. I'm not
0: no 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 <laughs> <laughs> you all in your own time <laughs> all in your own time
1: <laughs> nice well listen again congratulations on the book and good to see you again uh, for those um I don't think I've ever mentioned it on any podcast but you we met about a year or so ago
0: yeah I guess it's been a year you
1: came by our our cub scout meeting yeah and uh, showed the kids uh uh, your your medal. Yeah, it was and, a fun and day. And talked, uh, talked about rowing and, and your story and stuff. So the kids still remember it. That's good. Yeah, because I talked about it at yesterday's meeting. Okay. Yeah, because we were talking about uh, community service and volunteering. And one of the kids goes, what about those guys that I see sometimes on the highway picking up stuff. And I go, no, that's not community service. <laughs> that's community hours. Right. And yeah. then I'm reading your book and I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Jeremiah did that when he was a little kid uh, because of this incident did, when he was 17. Prob- yeah, did some probation. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> I, coached
0: going, la- I coached lacrosse for my, oh, was m- that my your- <laughs> community hours,
1: yeah. Um, the book is called The Four-Year Olympian, mm-hmm. but it starts off with you being bullied. Yes. Why was... Why did you think that was a good place to start?
0: Well, I set that up as a prologue. I thought it was a good place to start because, in a way, I wanted the book to convey, you know, what motivates a guy to try to learn a new sport and get to the Olympics, mm-hmm. you know, the way I did. And I think it goes, I think it goes deep. And mm-hmm. I think that that incident in my life of, you know, being this tall sort of overgrown kid for my age yeah. and then having the sort of the grade above kids pick on me in particular you know that one incident in the book where there's that bully Um, I think that's uh, I think that's a big part of it actually and it Mm -hmm. starts you know with that feeling of I wish I hit back yeah (laughs) I wish I had hit the kid back yeah and I remember just being afraid and alone and I and I I was angry at myself for not having the courage to to defend myself Mm -hmm. and so I think that plays out later on in my life in terms of you know, in a small way, not just not wanting to give up. And, and it was like now my, this coach, this enigmatic coach was hitting me in a way hmm. <laughs> I wasn't going to crack. Interesting. And so, you know, it's part of it. It's part of the motivation that, that led me to this pursuit.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm about a third of the way through. And I, I think around that, around where I am right now is, is where the actual four year journey uh, begins. Um, and, and I, I can understand why, as, as I was going through through the f- uh, first part of the book, why you're, you're sort of setting everything up. Right. Uh, because although it is, in, in some respects, a four-year journey, when you say, okay, let's do this thing, mm-hmm. um, a lot of things sort of set you up to prepare you physically, mentally, emotionally, um, to tackle, to be able to handle this four-year journey exactly. um, of yours. Um, it's also interesting in, in that first part where you talk about being bullied, you know, we're introduced to your father. You, you talked about his response when you, when you called him, I think, saying that you got beat up or got punched or something like that. Yeah. Um, what was his response again? I'll, I'll see you when I get home or something. Well,
0: I, I mean, I think he was concerned, but I, I can even remember his voice on the phone. I think he was like busy. Like it, it felt like he was busy at work Yeah. and it was kind of like you know, first of all, are you okay? Like he was concerned. Okay, okay. But then it was like, you know, I'll, I'll see you when I get home. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to rush home. Like, you know, You'll be fine. <laughs> sucking up buttercup, I'll see you when you get home. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, you know, maybe I'd do the same thing if my son called me. I don't know, but um, that's how it went. Yeah. How
1: old were you then when, that, when this incident happened?
0: Uh, I think I was, what was I, uh, eight or nine years old? Eight. How old your son now? Now my son is turning 13 tomorrow. He's turning 13. Yeah, he's turning 13 tomorrow. Well, happy
1: birthday to your son. Yeah. Oh wow.
0: Happy birthday Ethan. Yeah.
1: Um you, you another we we talked about, you know, the story that I was telling uh, my my cubs about you um, and me defining the difference between community service um, and and you know um, volunteering and, and community hours that you do when you're in trouble and stuff. Um it's it's almost like we hear these stories of, you know, kids in small towns always getting up to no good. Um, mm-hmm. were you, were you were you bored when you uh, held up that that uh pita man?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and just like should probably let the listeners know a little bit about that incident, yeah. right? So I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. I was at a house party in Coburg, Ontario, and I was bored with just drinking. You know, okay. Just sitting in a living room and drinking like that was boring to me. I wanted to do. Th- I wanted to. I wanted to do something more creative or more. <laughs> um, anyway, so I I came up with this idea to order twenty six pitas to the house four down four doors down, and we thought it was gonna be this kid from high school who we knew, and we'd all you know everyone ah. everyone was gonna get a, a laugh out of it at the end of the day. All right. So you know, in our minds, harmless prank. But the way it went down is. Uh, the guy who arrived was this middle-aged man, <laughs> and he kind of had this Someone look. your age now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, even older than I am now, probably in his 40s. And he had the as He stepped out of his car. It was snowing, and we were standing in the driveway with these uh, clavas on, on our like, Like, just total morons. And I had these red flannel um, pants on with, like, little polka dot snowmen faces all on them, <laughs> and this lumberjack coat. And I didn't even grab, the, my friend actually was the one that grabbed the pitas from the guy. And, That's right, and you were, you were watching. The, yeah, and I was just sort of his <laughs> accomplice, and we ran off laughing like hyenas. And anyways, long story short, the cops tracked us down. They brought sure. up the, the canine unit. It's the kid they with the They tracked us down to the house, and then, they, and then they went from the house, and I was walking home at 2 in the morning, and the cop pulled up behind me, threw me on the hood of the car, and I thought, oh, he's just trying to, you know teach me a lesson, but that led to a long court process. And I was facing Mm -hmm. an indictable offense of robbery because we were, because there was physicality involved with my friend actually pulling the pitas away. So Mm -hmm. that made it physical and more than just theft. And, and so when you're facing a charge of robbery, I mean, that's, that's an indictable offense. And that, that was huge. So I, I could have gone to you a youth penitentiary or just jail really Mm -hmm. for uh, up to two years or maybe even more. So, um,
1: you spent a couple of nights in jail, or I something, I spent right? a few days.
0: I had to. I think this was like on a Thursday or Friday, and then they had to hold me over until Monday or Tuesday when they could hear my case for, um, uh, you know, for bail, I guess. And my parents got me out until until the court proceedings.
1: What do you? What's going through your head? Are you like scared? Like, oh my god!
0: You know, I was stupid because <laughs> they. I was I was in the jail, and they had my buddy was in there as well, mm-hmm. and this was just like the. The local like municipal jail holding cell, right? Like the drunk, it's like where they put people, the drunk tank, you know, just like (laughs) at the local jail, and these two uh, officers um, were interrogating me at like four in the morning. Oh my! And I was just this young. This, this belligerent young rash boy And I was like I'm not going to rat out my friend <laughs> So your friend never got in trouble So I think my friend just just spilled the beans right away And said yeah this is what happened And, oh this my. <laughs> and I was like I'm not, I'm not saying anything <laughs> <laughs> You
1: remember those
0: old uh, I was, Mafia movies Yeah Godfellers. I've watched way too many mafia movies And I was not going to say a thing <laughs> And so that probably did not help my case um, And so I did spend a few days At, at the Brookside Youth Penitentiary in Coburg which is a young offender's facility. Yeah, And uh, so I didn't do a lot of time there, but I I was there between three or five days or something like that. Wow. And it was enough to know that I did not want to spend eight months or two years in there. Wow. So it was a really life changing moment for me. It was was like, you know, to your question. Yeah. I've always been sort of a creative energy inside of me kind of kid. Yeah. And uh, you know, when this happened, I thought, "Well, geez, I'm not a bad guy. Like, I'm a, I've got a good sure. soul. I got a good heart. You yeah. know, I, I mean well. I just, you know, you i were bored. I like to, I like to disturb the peace once in a while. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're just a kid. I'm just a kid having some fun. <laughs>
0: you know, so that's the backstory.
1: Um, in, in your book, it, it um, y- you quickly get to McMaster. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Were you play and, and you and you joined the football team, were you playing football before that? Like, were you active in, in sports no. at all?
0: I grew up playing minor hockey in Cobra. That's
1: right, that's right, yeah, yeah, I remember.
0: And then when I got to McMaster, they didn't have a varsity hockey team. Yeah. So I decided I would be a walk-on tryout to the football team. Yeah. And uh, I remember there's, there was this one play during training camp. I had emailed the coach. He said, okay, I don't know. Sure. You know, Walk you, on. You can come try it out. <laughs> sure. We'll give you a look. But most of the athletes were recruited from high schools from football. Of you know, And so I was kind of an outside shot. But I showed up, and I just put everything into those one-on-one drills. I just hit these guys as hard as I could. Yeah. And the coach loved it. He loved the intensity. Okay. He singled me out one day. He's like, yeah, that's how you play football. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anything, right? I didn't know anything about how to, like, any positional play or – the offensive playbook, which was eighty two plays, like I mean I was in way over my head. It took me two years from you know, having them allow me to stick around on the practice roster mm-hmm. to actually learning the game and then actually earning a starting role in my third year.
1: Yeah. And then so, you got and then you get injured.
0: Then I got injured? Yeah. I tore my labrum in my shoulder. What
1: year was that? Was that your final year?
0: No, that was my third year. Okay. And then uh I tried to come back mm-hmm. and it seems like every athlete has this story of coming back too early. It seems like it's always too early. Yeah. And I just continued to aggravate the shoulder. And so my fourth year was um, not my best year. You know, I felt like I was just kind of protecting the shoulder and, and trying to survive out there. Yeah. Blocking some pretty big guys on the offensive line. And uh, and then the, my football career came to a close. And there I was with, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but no. my ninth my. At 19, my son was born, (laughs) so I had, I had a baby on my hands, and you know, looking to the future, I guess I better get a job. I best, I guess I better settle down. Better grow up. Grow up, you know, man up, be a man.
1: We we talked earlier before we started recording, and I and I told you it's like it's a very, it's not a, you know, when someone looks at the cover. 4 year olympian i'm gonna learn how to be an olympian in four years like jeremiah is gonna outline oh really here's my i'm just thinking <laughs> what, Stoke what and joke. <laughs> yeah here's 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 fourth you know here's you know 20 things that jeremiah did over four years he changed his diet he worked out you know 15 times a day or um you know he 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 stopped look you know hanging out with his friends but it's it's a very you know like like we were talking about it's a very open a very honest and raw book right and part of that is, you name names like you, like everything, everyone from the the guy who uh, picked on you uh, to obviously Amy, um, your your girlfriend in in uh, in university who you then uh, married Ethan's mom.
0: Yeah. No, we didn't get married, but we were together for eight years. Sorry. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, did you? So I have a bunch of questions. Okay. First question is, um, did you talk to everybody that's in your book saying, hey? You're going to be in my book. Are you okay? Like, I'm. I'm curious no, about that process. No, I think okay. if you're
0: if you're a writer and you're trying to write a memoir, yeah, you can't go asking for permission. Okay. Because what you're doing is you're telling a story, mm-hmm. which is your version of reality as you experienced it. Yeah. And you know, you can't make stuff up. Sure. But in any given set of circumstances, you'll have your view. I'll have my view. You know, if we were party to the same experience. Yeah. Uh, a good example is my teammates, right? They would sure. have had their view on things and i had mine so no i didn't go talk to i didn't go asking i didn't you know i didn't warn anyone (laughs) i mean you know ethan's mom amy eventually she knew that i was writing this book because i talked to ethan about it he saw me working you know writing for hours a day for you know two years yeah and and more so um no uh i did not i did not you know i did not warn people or or what did Amy think?
1: There's a, there's that chapter where you talk about having sex with Amy. Who wouldn't want to have sex with Amy? <laughs> getting getting in between the sheets with Amy.
0: I don't think I ever said the word sex, though. You I... meant, okay, you might not have
1: said it, but it was like in the sheets with Amy. And then yeah. Amy, and it was like, wow, I, I'm curious what Amy thought. <laughs> what did Amy think of that chapter or just her being in the book and, and you being very honest? I think
0: the feedback I've heard is when you read the whole book, yeah. Amy comes across as... You know, a real champion of, of a human being, and yeah. uh, you know, I haven't. She hasn't. She hasn't given me feedback about that particular passage. Okay. I know she has the book. In fact, I haven't yet even. We haven't really, really talked. Uh, I don't know if she's finished it yet or, or what. But, um, you know, I acknowledge her in the book many times as being one of the key pillars of support. Uh, yes. Despite. I, yeah. The unraveling of a relationship during that journey. Mm-hmm. She. She was amazing, and it wouldn't have happened without her. But in terms of like being between the sheets, but well, look, hey, you, you were seventeen once, you know, you were eighteen <laughs> once. Like if you guys, you know, if this is, uh, uh, this is this is the way it was, and uh, you know, when you're young. Hormones has can he, rule. <laughs> has Ethan read the book? Yeah, Ethan was the first person to read the book. Myself. Wow. Yeah.
1: What did he What did he say?
0: So I, he was reading it. And I was watching him, and I'm like, "What page are you on?" <laughs> and I check, and then if there was something where it was like Let's a little a beyond pages. a little beyond PG, I was like, "Okay, let me just explain this <laughs> to you." But uh, well, that's a
1: good way to teach a kid. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's how I got my birds and the bees talking. <laughs> nah, he's a pretty mature kid. I mean, he's that's awesome. He's been reading since he's a little guy, so. No, he he was—he actually—he liked the book. Nice. Yeah.
1: Is—is is he one—is he one of those kids that thinks that is the coolest guy? He's been in the Olympics. He's now uh, an author. Or is he one of those kids? Not tr- around me. That. Yeah, my dad—he's kind of embarrassed. Like, wh- wh-
0: oh, which which Ethan is he? I'm pretty, I'm pretty embarrassing. I tell a lot sure. of dad jokes. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty awkward and goofy. <laughs> I just <laughs> like to be right. That's the right we have as fathers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know. So there's definitely that, but I think secretly he, he uh, respects you yeah. know, what I've done. And the funny thing with him is he was six years old when I was at the Olympics and hmm. he, would, he still remembers sessions when I was training and I'd yeah. bring him down to the gym in our condo in the basement. I'd be mm-hmm. like, dad's got to do a session. Yeah. Mom's working. You got to come with me. Yeah. And you can't talk to me. You can't touch me an hour because sure. i have to do an olympic level workout <laughs> which means i'm gonna bust my ass and you're gonna go play on the treadmill <laughs> and you know he's just a little guy right he was so cute he was four or five years old and he's playing on the elliptical and he's mm-hmm. coming over dad are we done said, yeah no dad's training <laughs> you know I'm just sweating so he's been he's been part of this he's been part of the olympics and then when i was writing the book he was he saw the work i put into it yeah and so i think he I think as a parent, that's what you try to do is actually model for your kids. Sure. You know, yeah. you can tell them all day what they should do, but they, they watch you. He saw you sacrifice. Yeah. He and work saw hard. Exactly. And, and I think that's the lesson that he'll take with him, I hope.
1: Yeah. I, I can understand the, um, the attraction to hockey, mm-hmm. especially in Canada. Um, football, another team sport, another popular sport. Um, rowing. What was it about rowing?
0: I thought I could be successful at it. I looked, okay. at, my, I looked at my strengths as an athlete. Um, I said, okay, rowing, that's interesting. I remember watching the 2008 Men's 8 win the gold medal for Canada. <coughs> they were on the podium, and I thought, those guys look just like me. Long arms and legs. Yeah. You know, and I'm kind of…
1: Not swimming? Didn't think swimming?
0: No, I didn't think s- swimming never came across my mind. I remember seeing them win. I thought, okay, Canada's got a you know a bit of a legacy here. Yeah. Like they seem like they're a bit of a powerhouse in this sport. Um, and the rowing motion is kind of like a sitting hang clean. And we did a lot of power lifts when uh-huh. I was playing football. Okay. And I wasn't the strongest guy, but I had pretty good technique. And you know, a lot of this is just bro, bro science, you know, like just. <laughs> but I, I just there's a few things that I thought, okay, I think I could actually try this maybe learn the sport and yeah. maybe be maybe well, why, why not me you know look at those guys on the TV yeah what's the difference between them and me just a huge mountain of hard work yeah that's the way I looked at it
1: why sports why what drove you to want to excel in sports
0: because sports are truth and justice and 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 there's and there's a, a purity there that I like now that's not to, like of course there's politics too and there's not everything's fair but what I liked about rowing is it seemed to be so linear. It seemed to be like, if you put in the work, mm-hmm. that's what you're gonna get out of it. You're not gonna get you know, blindside tackled and blow your ACL and that's it, your career's over. Mm. It seemed like it was very much up to you what you got out of that sport. And that was born out, that's true with rowing. I mean, mm-hmm. you sit there and you row and you row and you <laughs> row for hours and hours a day at intensity and you wilt and you have to figure out how to stay w- stay at it and keep going. Um, so sport for me was just, you know, I looked at this journey as this is going to be a test of my will. You know, I grew up with okay. this state of, the, I, I grew up, all my life I had this sort of sense of fate. You know, determinism. Mm-hmm. I grew, I grew up going to church, and there was sort of like this childish notion of a higher, higher being. And I, I'm not, I'm not dismissing religion or anything like that, yeah. but it was this sense of. Things will be the way they will be, and there's not much. We're all, you know, sure. playing our part. And Your destiny is predetermined. Yeah, it's, sort of you know, we're, this is life, and mm-hmm. it will go as it will go. And, and when I hit rowing, it was like this, I was shedding all that. I was like, no, um, I'm going to test my will with this pursuit. Yeah. And it was really like a, almost a spiritual thing <laughs> where I said, I'm going to really see how far I can go with this, and I'm going I'm to see how strong my will is. There's there's a part in, in the book where
1: you compare what happened to you in football. Um, you tore your shoulder, um, and you I, I don't know whether you use the word quit, but you sort of mentally checked out saying, Okay, that's it, that's the end of my football career and then mm-hmm. you're and, and, and you refer to that as your um training or practicing and and s- still haven't made um, I guess the full commitment. Mm-hmm. To rowing um what was it at that point in your life where you said okay this'm this thing is not something i'm going to quit. this is not something i'm going to try this is something i'm going to do
0: yeah, it's a great question. You know the first time I remember having well i remember I remember it clearly I was at the gym, I had done one of my first rowing workouts on the rowing machine, the ergometer, mm-hmm. and my back got sore, and I was trying to do this workout that a coach had given me. And this was like, I was just sort of beginning and my back kind of seized up on me. And I stopped this workout halfway mm-hmm. through, I thought, Oh God, you know, I haven't even really begun and, and I've already got an issue and I remember lying on the mat, rolling it out on a foam roller and yeah, I actually remember that day. I remember thinking to myself at first I was like, well, I guess this sport, you know, is the same old record going in my head. Yeah. I guess this sport's not for me. I guess oh. that, you know, this is probably not going to work out anyways. And then there was just a moment where I was just like, I don't know. I, I guess I shouldn't swear on this podcast. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter? I was like, okay. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was like, fuck that. <laughs> I was like, you know, it was that moment. I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. I am going to uh, come hell or high water. I'm going to see this through. I'm, I'm going to, I don't care if my body breaks. I'm going to mm. teach my body to, to fall in line. And I know wow. that might sound nonsensical, but I was determined in that moment to see this through and to truly push myself further than I ever had in my life as an athlete, as a human being. Yeah. Really.
1: Yeah. I can just imagine as, as I'm reading parts of the book and you, you talk about you are working at a bank, you're in, you're in Victoria or just outside Victoria Yeah, and you're, you're working a, Finance job—it's not nine to five. I'm sure it's, uh, the hours a little bit extended on both sides, but you're training in the morning. Mm-hmm. You're working. Yeah, at lunchtime you're training. Um, you go back to work, um, and and you might have—I I can't remember right now—but you might have trained after work. Plus, you got a kid. Yeah. And you're you're trying to figure out um, your relationship with Amy. You can um, you
0: can see why my relationship unravels. <laughs> 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 Writings on the wall. Well, so wait. <laughs>
1: and sometimes i think that i'm busy um well look we need we got to
0: qualify this okay Okay, because i I, you know my if i have a brand it's i I try to be a straight shooter and be authentic with people and i don't want people listening to this thinking that you know i was this um um you know this guy that just hit it hard and just had no you know um uh, no misgivings, no mm-hmm. second thoughts. So, th- yeah, I was training like you said, but I wouldn't get to the lunchtime workout every day. I'd miss some days, mm-hmm. you know, or I'd be busy with work, or I'd just be lazy. It just like oh, I don't want to do it, mm-hmm. and I just wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I was growing my discipline over time. It's a process. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't get out to the lake after work very much at all. That okay. wasn't very realistic. I mean, the job was demanding, yeah, and I was learning a lot, so I was exhausted a lot of the time. But it was, you know, as I started like. I wasn't just locked in and and disciplined and doing everything I should right away. I was missing some training. I was, and then I would beat myself up about it. And then I was sort of regathering my motivation and like, okay, let's, let's start again. Mm -hmm. And so it was a sense of almost starting and stopping some false starts. Mm -hmm. It wasn't this congruent, you know, um, I made a decision and then Off I went until I got to the Olympics and won a medal. No.
1: That actually makes me feel good. Yeah,
0: no, it was, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of self-doubt, right? I mean, the whole, the book is basically, once you get into the, in the meat of it, it's an exposition on overcoming self-doubt. And we're all plagued with it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter what you're doing with your life. Mm. Um, Athletes, Olympians, they have all the same fears and insecurities. And they just, there's something in them or there's something they learn to do to overcome those, but it's over time. No one makes a decision and then becomes uh, the embodiment of a future Olympian. Sure. That doesn't happen. That's that's a that's all a right. that's a lie. <laughs> I feel better about
1: myself and all my restarts of losing weight and going to the gym yeah, exactly. and, and stuff. It's, that's that's fantastic Yeah. You know, because you're you're right, you know, because you know we'll we'll read these books, mm-hmm. your book not being one of them, where it's like I don't know whether I can commit four years of you know two a days right um and and although you probably made that mental commitment mm-hmm. you didn't follow through right every day you exactly know, you failed every other day maybe or,
0: or that's the cycle right yeah you make a decision in your mind and, mm-hmm. in your, and you look in the future and you see yourself doing these things mm-hmm. and then maybe, maybe you end up doing 70 percent or 40 percent of yeah. what you committed to in your mind yeah. right and then you either say well this is not working out or you, um, sort of reaffirm Mm -hmm. and maybe you do 80% of what you say next time or 85% next time. And you're growing that discipline. It's, it's, it's escalation of commitment. It's, uh, confidence slowly growing, um, you know, putting in the time it's, you can't, you can't fast track that process. Mm -hmm. You got to go through it. It doesn't matter what the pursuit is. Cool. I mean, it was the same thing was right with writing the book. It was the exact same thing.
1: Five years, eh?
0: Yeah, it took, it took five to write, years. To write the book. Well, including the, the whole publishing process. Mm. About a year with the publisher. And, but yeah, a good solid four years of writing.
1: And I, 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 I want to get to why, why you decided uh, to write the book. But I want to um, I wanna ask you about uh, a, a few people. Um, the first person, and, and I guess these are, these are mentors, coaches um, in your life. The first one that, that, that I got introduced or, or popped out to me was Coach Riley.
0: Yeah, my football uh, coach. Football coach. Offensive lineman.
1: Yeah, tell me about him.
0: Um, well, Coach Riley uh, had coached at McMaster University. He coached the offensive line for many, many years. And he himself is a, a Grey Cup champion. Played in the CFL. Was an incredible athlete. An offensive lineman himself. And he was the kind of guy that liked to take, you know, young men under his wing and, and teach them discipline and teach them you know work ethic and the game of football which he loved so much mm-hmm. and he would you know he'd scream at you but then he'd take you aside and say hey you know you're doing okay <laughs> <laughs> so it was that uh the push pull and mm-hmm. but you know he's a he's 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 got one of the biggest hearts uh out of any coach i've ever been involved with you know he mm-hmm. really cares about his about the athletes so that's riley he was uh he always had his tilly hat on at practice and you know his whistle and barking at us and Yeah, um, he was one of the first people I told uh, that I got my girlfriend pregnant. Yeah, (laughs) and it was a huge relief. You know, it was raining after practice one day, and he's wearing that tilly hat, the water streaming off of it. And I said, Coach, uh, I got to tell you something. And he was just kind of, oh wow, (laughs) you know, he was stunned. But you know, just it it allowed me to get it off my chest. There was so much pressure on me in that that time. So that was Coach Riley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We also
1: meet uh, Doug White. Doug White. Yeah. Who's, who is Doug White?
0: So Doug White is a longtime rowing coach, still lives out in Victoria mm-hmm. BC and he's coached at um, the Olympic level and, and uh, you know the senior international level for many years. Uh, for more recent years, he's been a club coach for the Victoria City Rowing Club and that's where actually I started this journey in earnest with him. Mm-hmm. And Doug is a man of few words. Uh, he's got a twinkle in his eyes. He has a vision. Mm-hmm. And when I met Doug, I was at a Howard Johnson restaurant near the lake where the rowers tended to congregate between training sessions. And he was cradling a cup of steaming coffee. He had a, a leathery face from all those years out there you know, yet. in the boat. And he asked me what I intended to do with the sport. And yeah. I told him I want to go to the Olympics and win a gold medal. Yeah. I, thought, oh, this, you know, I thought he was going to laugh at me. I was kind of rocking in my seat in the booth, yeah. thick, you know, daring him to. Tell to, me I can't to, do, do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was expecting. But he didn't. He didn't even blink. He just kind of looked down, looked back up. He said, all right, well, we don't have a lot of time. We better get to work. And that was a huge moment because now this, this guy who had credibility, yeah. who, who knew rowing and knew mm-hmm. what it took, to uh, To build a, uh, an Olympic athlete mm-hmm. uh, seemed to believe in me. Yeah, and and that was the first that was the first person I really confided in. That I honestly, you know, more it was it was very private until that moment. Okay, you know, in the year or two, like even from 2008, basically to 2000. Well, that year of 2008 was mostly a private dream. Mm. But when I met Doug that winter, it was in Victoria, 2008 in the winter. That's when uh, this man, this guy. You know believe in me, and I'll tell you there's something. About, you know, you have to. It's, there's personal responsibility in having that self belief. It has to start with you. Mm-hmm. But it it's really powerful when someone else recognizes that. that in, yeah. yeah, when they recognize it, that's they,
1: huge. Now you you had tried rowing previous. You had gone to a place you had ventured a boat, I think, or yeah, something, and a couple of false starts. Yeah, and and you said, "F this." Right. Um. Was what was it still watching that? Two thousand and eighteen, and saying those guys look like me. Did you ever think in your head, yeah, those guys look like me, but I, I couldn't even stay in the boat. I kept on falling over, or, or I couldn't figure things out. I'm, I'm curious. Um,
0: no, there was a time. Uh, there was a ro- there was actually a, a rowing fundraiser on rowing machines in the atrium at Mac- McMaster University. Actually, before that, where mm, that's right, yeah, I raced this guy. Uh, one of the rowers from McMaster University, it was a 500-meter race. He beat me by a second. I had the most god-awful technique. I was falling off my seat. Yeah. But um, that kind of piqued my interest initially, and that was even before the Olympics. And then after the Olympics, yeah, I, I went to the Peterborough Rowing Club, and I tried to borrow a boat and just learn how to row on my on my own with mm-hmm. no coaching which was a disaster. I mean, Ethan was on shore in his diaper, like, looking at his dad <laughs> just fall in the water repeatedly, <laughs> unable to figure it out. I had the equipment hooked up incorrectly, the oar locks backwards. Mm-hmm. It was just a... It was stupid, but... So there were a couple of these false starts. Uh, another one was in Hamilton, um, again, before the Olympics. I went out. So, you know, I, I say that 2008 was the inspiration. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really when so the light went off. But I had... I had sort of dabbled with the idea, I guess, beforehand. But yeah. those times were, uh, I think it was after watching the Olympics, where it really became a serious kind of seed that was planted inside of me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um,
1: 2012, you guys win the silver medal. Um, when you watched the team in 2008, they had won the gold medal. Mm-hmm. Um I mean I'd be freaking excited to go to an Olympics and, and just to go. Yeah. Um but I'm curious from an athlete's perspective. Um what did
0: that mean to you? Well, it's all relative you, in terms of the result, right? Sure. Like the silver medal. Yeah. So a question I get is, yeah, it's like, well, are you upset that you didn't win the gold? Mm-hmm. You know, after all we lost the race, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. But uh no, I mean, we went in as the third ranked crew in the world. In our first heat, we bombed. We came in last by like 13 seconds. Mm. We just, uh, it was a meltdown. We went out, we were too nervous. We didn't execute our race plan. We tried to we tried to really muscle the first strokes and, and go off at a high stroke rate and just not to plan. And so um, all the crews moved through us. We were last by 13 seconds. Remember this... A reporter after the race saying, sticking the microphone in front of my mouth saying, oh, where do you go from here? I was like, oh, Joe, I guess we've got to tighten up, come back out here, second race. Sure, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just like the trite athlete response, yeah. knowing how those hockey players feel in, in between periods now. <laughs> um, And so we went this roller coaster from third ranked in the world to, are we even going to make the final? Mm-hmm. To recovering in the reprochage, mm-hmm. which is the second race. It's like a second, a uh, last chance to get into the final with the crews that won the two heats. Mm-hmm. And then had one of our best races in that Olympic final mm-hmm. as a crew to, to win that silver medal. So for us, it very much felt like winning the silver medal sure. versus losing the gold. Losing the gold yeah. And depends on, you know, every athlete will have some version of this story where it is relative, you okay, know? It yeah. depends on their situation. So yeah. if, if they, you know, some Olympians, let's say their personal best was sixth in the world in their event, and they went in ranked 20th, mm-hmm. I think they're gonna be quite happy. Yeah. I think they're gonna be very happy with themselves. Sure. If an athlete wins a bronze medal and they expect it to win gold, no, they're not gonna be happy. Mm. It's all relative. It depends on what your expectations are going in. Yeah. It's as simple as that.
1: But to you, it was like you, were, you won the silver. Oh
0: yeah, like we, you'd think we won the platinum medal. <laughs> <laughs> like the Germans who won the gold, yeah, yeah. they had been undefeated for four years. They were the class of the okay. field. I mean, they were, they were impeccable rowers. And it was going to take our best race to challenge them and bring them down. Mm-hmm. I think, because we had broken the world record in the heat of a World Cup event a couple of months earlier, we thought we, we had it in us if we had like the perfect race. But uh, you know, they they earned it. We were closing down on, on them in the final stage of the race, but but uh, they won. And when they were celebrating like it looked like we won the gold medal. We were so happy because it's the rel- it's the relativity of the experience <laughs> sure. that that creates what you feel inside. Yeah. And so we're pumping our fists and we're so happy <laughs> that we survived that awful <laughs> heat and then actually came out with a silver medal when we were third ranked, right? So, yeah. you know, it seemed like, well, at best, if we can recover and get that bronze, that would be a huge achievement. So to get one better and do silver. Yeah, it was amazing.
1: Nice, nice. And
0: the Germans were just relieved <laughs> <laughs> that they didn't screw up. <laughs> um,
1: when, did you, when did you actually make the team?
0: Um, well, January 1st, 2011 is when I joined the team full-time. Okay. That's when I left my job. Okay. And that's when I went for it. And that was based on um, having a certain level of performance at the national championships that year in the single skull. Mm-hmm. And I had to meet certain standards on the rowing machine. Okay. Uh, certain like fitness standards. Okay. Had to meet, you know, uh, pull a certain time, a certain score. All right. And so January 1, 2011, that's when I joined the team full time. Okay, awesome. Yeah.
1: Um, and so the next question after after winning the silver medal mm-hmm. is why not stay on? So I, I'm, I obviously haven't gotten to that part of the book. Maybe you answered that already in, in, in the book, but I'm curious.
0: Well, I thought about it, but... Honestly, I got everything I wanted out of the okay. experience, out of the sport. And I was sick of the sport by the time I got through the Olympics because okay. I didn't ease into it. I don't think I ever have, to this day, I don't know if I've had, I've had maybe three like leisurely rows in my life. Yeah. <laughs> because the first row I took was to try to become an Olympian. So it was sure. always this driving, driving, pushing, pushing. Like, like, like I don't have a lot of time. i got to catch up. And so I don't know if I really enjoyed it the way... A lot of rowers, they get into the sport because it's they love the, you know, the flow and the, you know, Mm. floating over water. And, and, you know, it's really beautiful when you when you get a nice stroke and you you exit your blades at the finish and you carry them above the water. Yeah. You know, perfectly balanced. You feel like you're soaring in a sense. Mm. It's 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 a beautiful sport, but I didn't really get to appreciate that or enjoy it um, because of how how hard I hit it, how quickly. Interesting. So quickly. So after the Olympics. I was happy to move on. And the other key part of this answer to this question is that I made a promise to Ethan's mom that if she stuck by me and supported me, yeah. even after we broke up, that I would move anywhere she wanted to because she had moved. We were both from Coburg. We grew up high school sweethearts, both in the same town. And I convinced her to move out there basically for my opportunities and my dreams. Yeah. And after we broke up, I mean, I know she wanted to go back home, come back east, back to Ontario. And I said, Amy, look, I need your help if I'm going to do this. Sure. Because, you know, I love my son. You know, we both love our son more than anything. And I wasn't going to be able to survive mentally, you know, if they were to go back. Mm. And I was separated from my boy. Yeah. So I had to ask her. Um, She had moved out. And I remember one morning, because I was carting Ethan to her house before I go to practice. So I'm I'm literally taking, he's in his PJs and wrapping up in blankets in the winter, going into the car, driving Mm. to her house at like, wow. 4 45 a.m or 5 a.m yeah he's sleeping he's in a bundle blank it's like she co- opens the door you know light comes on the porch I hand I hand off my son to her and it just wasn't sustainable you sure know? so I said look Amy I need you to come and move back in to our little 500 square foot condo yeah and just keep our family together and we'll have this platonic relationship but I need your support and she did it Wow. And you know, it was a hugely selfish ask. And, yeah. and being an elite athlete is a very selfish existence, you know? And she, kudo, like, uh, she did it. And so after the Olympics, I, w- I wanted to stay in Victoria, actually. And, of course, I tried to convince her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but when she, when she made the decision, no, I want to I go back. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, we discussed where. We ended up in Peterborough. Okay. But that's uh, essentially, you know, I had to keep my promise, and, and that's where we are now. And so it's worked out. Oh wow! Yeah,
1: that's actually a good story. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually a happy story. It's a
0: happy story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she stood by me. I couldn't have done it without her. And yeah. then afterwards, I was happy to, you know, keep my end of the deal. And so that's why, and now we're in Peterborough, and and Amy and I have a great relationship now. We always joke about it, how we should start a radio show on how to how to co-parents after a breakup without all the disaster stories you usually hear.
1: Yeah, about. Uh, yeah. That's that's you really know. really interesting. Um, are you guys serious about doing that?
0: We might. I don't know.
1: See, I don't put She's any. I put, don't put anything <laughs> past you, um, just because of like you're right, gonna yeah. do something. You're gonna do it. It's like, well, that's Jeremiah. Whatever he says he's gonna do, he ends up doing it. Um, and I'm gonna ask you about stuff that not
0: know, without a, a great deal of, of uh, consideration and thought put into it sure. first. Sure. But yeah, once I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, I'm all in. Yeah.
1: Um, when did you start working for the COC?
0: I started that job in the spring of 20. 20- 15.
1: Okay, so a couple of years after. Three years ago, yeah. The Olympics.
0: So after the Olympics, yeah.
1: And that was, you started off as this manager of sort of the, is it called Game Plan, right?
0: Game Plan is the name of the program. Game yeah.
1: Plan, yeah. Is that what you started off doing? Or?
0: Yeah, well, I started off, originally my, my title was Manager of Athlete Wellness, mm-hmm. which was basically these programs that we were trying to build and, and what became Game Plan. Okay. And then I moved uh, a year later into like a full leadership position Mm -hmm. of that program game plan national manager was my title. And we were trying to, um, build this this transition program. Um, and that's what I've been doing the last three years.
1: Cool. So tell me about this program. What does it help athletes do? What are some of the success stories you're able to talk about?
0: So it's basically all the non-sport aspects of an athlete's life that Mm -hmm. we try to support them in. So what's their education plan? And, uh, we uh what's their career plan uh what skill development opportunities can we offer them you know we do a lot of workshops regionally at the sport institutes there's seven of them across the country okay which are hubs where different national teams will send training groups and a lot of athletes sort of congregate around these hubs and so we have i manage a team of of we call them game plan advisors they're like athlete counselors Mm -hmm. they work with athletes and try to get them to think about what their career plan is, uh, what their education plan is, if they haven't done that yet. Um, We'll do workshops on personal finance, on social media, branding. We have mental health services. Mm. It's pretty broad what we do. Yeah. Um, And the biggest challenge is getting athletes at that level. They're so focused on trying to be the best in the country and the world at their sport. Mm -hmm. So you can understand that it's hard to engage them, right, because they're... um, They've got, the, they've got the blinders on. Sure. They're thinking, I have to put everything into my sport if I'm going to achieve my goals, my dreams. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, well, yes, we know that you're like that, but we need you to get thinking about other parts of your life because sport comes to an end. Yeah. And the transition is most difficult for athletes who have not thought at all what they want to do in the future, have not planned at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the program was born out of some of these stories of athletes who had really tough transitions and, you know, went, you know, Uh, went through depression or, uh, you know, some of them, In the in worst cases, they become, you know, they can go become alcoholics or, Mm. you know, get into drugs or, and and they're just trying to, and those are extreme situations, but, uh, you know, and there's been athletes who have committed suicide uh, um, as a result, at least in part, or uh, um, of that situational depression that comes from the loss of identity Mm -hmm. after your sporting career is over. Yeah. So I know I said a lot but that program is that's what we're trying to do is is build up all the areas of an athlete's life and their identity uh, as much as we can to hopefully support that ultimate transition out of sport hmm. be a smooth one.
1: So just before you started there you started writing and so I'm sure you decided before then to to write this story, your life story up until that point. Yeah. Why?
0: Yeah, it seems kind of uh, pretentious <laughs> for a 32-year-old to write their <laughs> life story. But I don't think of it as my – it's not an autobiography, right? It's not my whole life. It's, it's not your whole it's life, certain no. scenes, It's certain scenes. It's a memoir. Yeah, It's yeah. a memoir of what it took to get to the Olympics. And I had to give some backstory, you know, in terms of my family upbringing, some of those scenes in the book, mm-hmm. because that helps the reader understand, you know, how I got to that point yeah. of making that decision. Um, but why did I decide to write yeah. a book?
1: Did someone talk to you, you about no, hey man, you just started in the
0: sport, honestly, you should do, write a book. I was I was doing some sp- a couple speaking engagements after the Olympics. I was, okay. I was riding the high. And sure. I was getting out there sharing my story. Yeah. And I was having fun doing it. Um and then I thought, you know, maybe I should write an e-book targeting college competitive rowers okay. in the US and Canada. Yeah. About like the version of the book you said earlier, like the how to get to the Olympics in four okay, years.
1: Yeah.
0: And actually the book started out as this. Sort of part memoir, part like here's how you become the best rower possible in the shortest amount of time. Okay. Because I thought that was my, you know, that was my niche. That was that was what I could offer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then I sent the book out like an early, really, really shitty first draft. Okay. <laughs> I had like fifty-five thousand words scraped together, no editing. Yeah, yeah. And I just sent it to uh, like like a hundred rowers all over U.S. and Canada, asking for feedback. Okay. And a lot of the feedback was very encouraging but there was a consistent theme of we want to hear more about the story like all right like the people in your story and like Mm -hmm. why you why you chose to do that and i and i asked this i hired this one editor to go over the book and she actually challenged me she said you know you've got something here but you're not giving your reader everything like you're holding back uh there's this there's this thing in writing that's uh you no, know, like when you're when you show instead of sorry when you tell instead of show it's like this uh okay. it's this uh faux pas in writing you should not just write down a sequence of events and that's boring mm-hmm. so you have to you know immerse people in the scenes and make them feel like they're there with you and so she challenged me to actually learn how to write and like keep working at my writing because yeah. she saw some promise there kind of like Doug white with my <laughs> as you know
1: I think you can write this book
0: yeah she's like I think you can do this it's going to take it's going to take the same amount of commitment it took you to get to the Olympics, but I think you can do it.
1: That must have turned you on right yeah, there. Of course, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, I, you know, it was a challenge. And I was like, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. Yeah. And I'm going to, and I'm going to read and study great writers and, and I'm going to write and rewrite. And, you know, to be a great writer, you just have to write all the time and, huh. and get better at it, it's just like practicing anything else. You're not going to get better at writing by thinking about writing, you just have to write. So I, I took her advice and I, it was really hard. I threw out that draft almost like I was looking at oh, okay, what can I keep? What can I keep? Yeah. I just ended up throwing it all out. And that oh, was, wow. that was a few months work right there. Um, which really in the grand scheme of things was a couple of drops in the bucket. Mm-hmm. But then I started writing and, uh, you know, I'm very self-critical as we all are, let's mm-hmm. face it. And I was like, oh, this is shit. And uh oh, this is crappy. And, but I would just keep going, you know? How hard
1: is it for you to read your
0: own words?
1: Because I can't listen to my podcast.
0: No? No. I yeah. just,
1: I, like you said, I, I, I don't like the sound of my voice. That's, I think it's,
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I think most people have that, that uh, reaction, like hearing your own voice. I
1: hear my ums, I laugh yeah. too like, said. Oh
0: well, it's similar with writing. Yeah. I think it's probably more jarring listening to an audio recording of yourself. Mm. But with writing, um... There's this thing where you, you'll write something. Let's say you write a 1,000 words, and maybe in the moment you think it's gold, right? You're like, oh, <laughs> it's just my muse has, has come down, yeah. and I'm just I'm writing just pure gold. I'm going to keep all of this. You give it a few days. Don't look at it. Sometimes only one day. You come back, and you just see all the errors, and you see, oh, I was just rambling here, and this makes no sense, and it's not coherent. And you see all the problems, right? They emerge. They jump out at you mm-hmm. uh, with fresh eyes. So... It is hard to to read your own stuff, but the finished product i'm I'm pretty proud of because it went through a whole process you know a whole substantive editing process and yeah. we and and we cut out some bits that sure I would have liked to keep in but they make the narrative stronger they okay. make it tighter um, and I'm proud of where I ended up but of course I'll read I'll read my own book now I haven't even I mean, I haven't been into the book at all, right? I mean, I've been through it back and back, course, back did, and forth. You like lived it. <laughs> hundreds of times. I've lived it and yeah. i lived the writing of it. Yeah. But, you know, I'll read it. I'll, I'll open it up once in a while and, and be like, ah, you know, that actually turned out pretty good. Nice. And, uh, and then there'll be something else like, ah, I should have just cut that paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> so it never ends, right? It's a never-ending loop of, you know, it can be better. Yeah. And this was like my rowing coach, Mike Spracklin, used to say, well... If you rode 2,000 meters in 5 minutes and 59.9 seconds, Mm -hmm. then why couldn't you do it in 5 minutes and 59.8 seconds? Uh. And if you did it in 5 minutes and 59.8 seconds, then why couldn't you do it in 5 minutes and 59.7 seconds? It was like this relentless, right? Yeah. There's always a marginal gain to be had. And you have to be careful, actually, with that because it leads to obsession. And then obsession Uh can lead to, you know, you have to watch your mental health, honestly. There were some (laughs) dark times, both in the rowing and in the writing of that book.
1: Hmm, interesting. Um, how, how did you get yourself out of those dark times, both in, in, in rowing and in writing?
0: Yeah, so, man, that's a, that's a big question. Um, how did I get myself out of those hard times? Well, as a rower, a big part of it was having these amazing teammates hmm. who were suffering alongside me. Okay. And so you're kind of saying, well, I can't possibly continue because my body and mind are breaking down and I am broken, actually, I feel broken. I don't feel like I can get up tomorrow and go to rowing practice. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when you have a teammate who's going through it next to you yeah. and they're putting on their spandex and getting ready for the next row, uh, you know, it's motivating. You yeah. know? It's, uh, and there's nothing like the bond of you know, suffering through things w- mm-hmm. with another person. That'll that creates strong bonds, and I, I think of all those guys in the boat as as my brothers to this day. Um, but we got through it together, and there was a trust in my coach as much as I like hated him at times. Sure, I, I can s- imagine that. I respected that he was he was the best path I had to an Olympic medal. Huh. There was no doubt about that in my mind. So. Uh, I hated him (laughs) a lot of the time because he pushed us so hard. Yeah. And sometimes I I thought he took risks with our bodies that he didn't need to. Oh, wow. Um, But, you know, he had a plan and he had a vision. Mm -hmm. And I respected him for doing what he had to do. In terms of writing the book.
1: Very solitary activity now, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: No teammates to lean on.
0: Yeah, very solitary. Um, And that's what was particularly challenging is what I had used in the past to get through was no longer, it was just totally in my own head. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard Mike Spracklin in my head, (laughs) (laughs) but it was, it was me having to motivate myself, motivate myself when, you know, when you're writing a book, I mean, you don't know if anyone's going to read it. You don't even, you don't know if you're going to finish it. Sure. You know, it's a huge task. It takes years, um, usually to write a book. And so what gets you through? Uh, I guess it's just a commitment to see it through again, starting, stopping, there's false starts mm-hmm. there's days where you sit down to write, nothing comes out, and you yeah. just give up and um, and look i was I was dealing with my own kind of situational depression and anxiety, part of that was the hangover of the pressure from the Olympics. Mm-hmm. you know, obviously, I had compressed my experience into such a short time mm-hmm. that. I wasn't processing anything, and then writing the book was cathartic, but it was also while I was going through my own athlete transition and and dealing with the things, the very things that we were trying to support athletes in with the COC program that I started working on a little later. Um, So I don't know. I would go to the gym, you know, working out. It was important to stay Mm. active. Like i just sit on a stationary bike for 30 minutes or go on the treadmill or just do a very simple circuit, weight circuit. Yeah. And that would just get me back to sort of par mentally okay um, it was good spending time with family and friends, making sure I got out of my house, mm. you know uh, having my son was was huge because yeah. you know makes you laugh, makes you angry, but makes <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes you all kinds of things, but mostly makes you not think about the book or yeah. how it's going, so yeah, a lot of how many times did you quit things.
1: writing like saying that's it I'm not going to do this thing. <sighs>
0: Well, there was the gut check moment after that editor said, you should throw all this out and start over because, you know, there's a story here and it deserves to be told and told well. Yeah. And that was just like, oh, I know what's coming. I'm going to be, I'm going to be flogging myself, you know, mentally now to do this because that's how I am. In fact, (laughs) at one point I'm like, you know, talking to myself, right? I'm like, you know, Jeremiah, why don't you just be kind to yourself for once, you know? Go watch some TV. <laughs> go, go to a movie. Yeah, go to a movie. Just why don't you just chill out? Like, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you so intense?
1: <laughs> and what was the answer back?
0: The answer was, you're intense, <laughs> and this is and this <laughs> is how it, this is the manifestation of of, of who you are. <laughs> yeah, and you can't help it. And, uh, and and I wanted to do it. I wanted to do a good job. You got Adam Vancouver to write the forward. No. Not AVK, it was Who? Simon Whitfield. Simon
1: Whitfield, I'm yeah. so sorry. Simon Whitfield. Simon Whitfield. We have a lot of superstar um, people in the water. I was going to say rowers, but they're probably, one's a rower, one's a kayak. Yeah, everyone confuses yeah. confuses canoeing,
0: kayaking, and, yeah. and rowing.
1: And rowing. Um, yeah, tell me about Simon Whitfield.
0: Well, Simon was just a guy that I had a ton of respect for as an athlete. Um, he won a gold medal in Sydney, I think it was, in mm-hmm. triathlon. And then... Sydney or Athens, and he, and he won a silver medal. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2012 Olympics was his last Olympics. Yeah, he had an accident on the bike and it didn't end well for him. But uh, just an incredible athlete. Yeah, uh, and really celebrated in Canada for his for his accomplishments as an for individual sure. in a really tough sport. Mm-hmm. And I had talked to Simon. i got to know him after the Olympics at events here and there. We talk, and you know he's actually a, a really great writer himself. He he was writing this sort of um, just sort of free-flowing kind of s- stream of consciousness consciousness kind of stuff. Mm. And it was almost poetic. And Yeah. I remember reading some of these blog posts. Like he had a website and they reposted on his Facebook page. And I was reading and I thought, man, this guy is actually, like he's, like, I was connecting with what he was trying to convey. All right. And what he was trying to illustrate with his words. And so I ended up reaching out to him and just asking him if he would read the book and write the foreword. And he agreed. Nice. And I thought he did a good job with it, yeah. Cool. Um... So you're writing the book,
1: you're working at COC and and just recently you've, you've told me that you've left. Yes. The COC. I have. Job's done?
0: No, it's there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. But it it's been a little over 3 years. Yeah. And I feel like um you know, with my team, I've taken we've taken the program to a place where it's solid enough that i know it's going to continue to grow and athletes are going to continue to benefit okay And we've had some big wins signed a huge partnership deal with uh, smith school business at queen's university Mm. where many many athletes are eligible for scholarships to uh, their various uh, business programs we've got um, we signed on several universities to give athletes flexibility so they can go to school and pursue their sport at the same time And uh, so like, there's a lot of good things happening. And then this book was coming out and I felt like I wanted to uh, take the time and really promote it and get it out there and talk Mm -hmm. about it and share it with people. And there's speaking engagement opportunities that have come out of this. And so I just want to, you know, I spent five years on it. So I want (laughs) to I want to help it find an audience. Yeah. I want to I want to connect with readers and it's exciting. So um, the COC has been good to me. We had a we had a long transition plan for my successor, Tom Hall, who's a bronze medalist himself in, uh, in C1 in canoeing. And he's a friend of mine. He's a great guy. And so I've been onboarding him over the last month. But I'm spreading my wings. I'm, <laughs> you know, I've never, I've never had a job in an organization for more than two or three years in my life anyways. Yeah. And my disposition is I look at, uh, I guess I think of jobs as opportunities to, to meet great people and do great work. But also to repatriate my my bank account and get ready for the next big risk that you know the next big project that will that always has some financial risk involved, sure. some unknowns, and I I guess uh, like status quo is is just not for me. I, and you know it's an exciting opportunity. The work is is varied and challenging, but uh, I'm ready to go in a new direction, and it felt like the right time.
1: Nice. So you're not you're not joining MMA or anything like that. I'm not. No. Because you've been stretching here, and those those arms are like <laughs> massive.
0: <laughs> That's because in my in my little circuit, I've got pull ups, and I still do pull ups. So I'm maintaining the shell of an athlete. That's what you're seeing. You're... <laughs> but my cardio is just awful. Is, like,
1: is it okay? <laughs> if
0: I had to run away from you, I'd be leaning over, panting, breathing. Be... <laughs> well,
1: one thing that I was shocked at is, and maybe this this was part of the work you were doing with Game Plan, was the amount of money that athletes. Get paid or make. Yeah. And I'm not talking about, you know, baseball players, hockey players, you know, professionals right. like that. I'm talking about wrestlers, um, uh, con- rowers, yeah. uh, gymnasts, right. and, and so on and so forth, where there's not this professional circuit that you could, quote unquote, join and literally make hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars yeah. uh, a year. Um, I, I think in the book you said. You know, you're a quote-unquote regular athlete, makes 10,000, 10, 20,000 for an elite athlete?
0: Yeah, as a development athlete, uh, it's called, uh, you get carding, it's called, from the okay. federal government, Yeah. and a development card, so when you're uh, on your fir- like first year on the national team, you'll get, I think it's up to 11,000-something. Mm-hmm. When I was rowing, it was just under 10,000, mm-hmm. and as a senior athlete, so... Um, someone who's now competing internationally and representing our country, they will get a senior card. And that is, uh, it's been bumped up to uh, around $20,000, I think now, maybe a little more than that now. Do Canadians need to say, okay, we
1: don't mind being taxed a little bit more so that these athletes make more? Um, Is that the answer? Do we need the Royal Banks of the world to pony up more? Like, what what are your thoughts on what needs to, or does, does anything need to be done?
0: It's a great question um my view is that you know we raise a lot of marketing partnership dollars uh through the coc and uh, uh the organization has done a great job of that and and galvanizing corporate support for the olympic movement in canada mm-hmm. um i think our system is is quite fragmented and i think using the same Size pie, right? The same pot of money we have. I think there's things we can do as a sports system to just be more efficient, more organized, and then s- and pass on those efficiencies um, to either grassroots sports to grow sports in Canada, or to national team programs. You know, coaches, athletes directly. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I don't think you know it's a political question, right? Um, mm. Do we support the athletes? You know, you, you, w- whenever this stuff is on, like there's an article online about this you read the comments, there's always those those people who will who'll be like, oh, you know, why, why are we giving these these? People? I think athletes, they represent Canada. I think they inspire our youth. I think they inspire all Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a, a, an impact there that you can't necessarily measure, mm-hmm. you know, quantifiably, sure. at least not easily. And um, I guess it's up to each individual Canadian to, to have their view on it, but I think it's I think it's good for the country in the sense that kids, kids in particular, they need their idols. They need those those people they look up to, and and the Olympics gives them, and the Paralympics gives them a lot of those people, mm-hmm. and I think that's great. And we need kids to, you know, get more involved in, in sport. Like there's so much so much sure. competition with screen time and Fortnite. Like my son's playing Fortnite, this video game with his friends, and they just sit there. Um, you know, if I don't kick them out. Uh, you know, they they'll just sit there for hours and play yeah. play these games. Um, <clears throat> so there's there's heavy competition for kids' times, but we know we, that they need to be active. Uh, it's it's good for our. You know, there's so many health benefits to to being active. And for if, sure. if if the if our performance as a country at the mm-hmm. highest level does in fact trickle down, and, and you know that's something you can debate. But if that trickles down through our country, through our grassroots sports movements. Uh, people all age kids kids then um there's a lot of benefits to be had there. Hmm. I don't know if that t- it sounds like a l- <laughs> listening to myself talk it <laughs> feels a bit long-winded.
1: Um what's next for you? I know you're going to go on tour you're, you're talking you're, you're pumping the book, you're mm-hmm. you're going to be all over the country. Um but what's like what's the next itch that that you're going to have to scratch for the next 4 years?
0: Um I love drumming. But there's no money in it. But if that's I That's right. you've got drumsticks yeah. in your
1: in your Twitter profile yeah. photo.
0: I've always got my drumsticks with me. So I grew up playing piano for 10 years and Okay. classically and I and I play the drums and I'm always trying to get better at the drums. All right. And and honestly
1: Okay, so that's what you're going to do My next big yeah. dream would yeah. be
0: to to uh, play in a band and do like a world tour. All right. Or What kind of music? Uh pretty much all music all right I, I love i love i love the intricacies in the field like a good latin groove all right i like jazz because uh, it's intellectually challenging and and exciting in its own way i love a i love a straight ahead uh country country song that's okay. well written yeah not a lot of country okay <laughs> but i can appreciate it sure 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 <laughs> i love uh, uh rock yeah you know you, like you name it i i, I like it all all right. As long as it's well done. Okay. Yeah. So are
1: you, you're not part of a band right now?
0: No. In Victoria, after the Olympics, I was I was playing in a few different bands, an R&B band. Okay. G- I was doing gypsy jazz. I was busking on the streets when All the right. cruise ships come in. And I, uh, I had so much fun, but I ran out of money. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, if anyone is looking for a drummer.
0: Yes. If you're looking for a drummer, you can find me on bandmix.ca <laughs> or uh, just, you know contact me through my website at the fouryearolympia.com and yeah. uh, let's, you know, show me your music and uh, yeah, that's, I'll definitely get it going in Peterborough, because uh, this job I've been commuting, you know, two hours mm-hmm. working from home a couple of days a week, but I've been on the road a lot, there's mm-hmm. a lot of travel involved with the, with the work, and so yeah I'm looking forward to getting back to a consistent practice routine and hopefully rehearsing with some great musicians and just playing music with, with uh, great people um, and then I'll be happy in life Awesome.
1: Jeremiah, thanks so much.
0: <laughs> thanks for having for me. For
1: coming. It's been fun. It was Listen, fun. Before I let you go, um, I want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, you can, I uh, don't know where you're hearing this podcast from, but if you want to hear more uh, conversations like this, go check out uh, girthradio.com as well as creamkanji.com. You can also find this podcast on uh, Apple Podcast, uh, a.k.a. iTunes, uh, Stitcher Radio and almost everywhere else that you could uh, find podcasts um, and if you want to chat just uh, look me up on Twitter at Kareem Kanji um, Jeremiah if people want to keep in contact with you find out what's what's going on with your book and stuff yep best, how can they do that
0: best starting place is go to the 4 com. that's with the numeral 4 the 4 com. I'm on Twitter I'm on uh, Facebook just started using Instagram not huge on social but uh that's, you know you can find me at this site and the book you can buy it on Amazon it's in Walmart, it's in Barnes and Noble if you're down in the states it's it's all over and, um, Local, your favorite bookstore should have it or ask them to get it it's in chapters so it shouldn't be hard to find the book if you're interested in picking it up okay. thanks
1: again for coming by
0: thank you All aboard, and bring your offerings. thirsty for more for more for more